Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with Jeremy Carver, showrunner of the new series Doom Patrol, which is currently streaming on the DC Universe app. Later, critics Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario will talk about HBO's Leaving Neverland and Netflix's Afterlife. Stay tuned. Jeremy Carver, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. So, Doom Patrol is not... um, the best known, probably comic book property. Could you just talk about? Uh, it has an it has an interesting history. Could you talk about what the you know where the title originates and and what that history has been? Sure, and and just know that I'm probably not the expert even yet on the history of Doom Patrol. Um, because before I started working on Doom Patrol, I was not uh, very aware of them as well. Um, uh, so. Uh, they were a superhero group that I believe was created in the 1960s by Arnold Drake and um, have had several iterations over the decades. Um, <clears throat> I think they've been killed off a couple times, come back, and they've been rejuvenated um, uh, uh, to the point where there's a run of them going on now. Uh, Our Doom Patrol um, touches on all the different iterations. Um, with a particular uh, fondness and soft spot for the Grant Morrison run of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you were looking at that source material, I guess, I mean, what were the sort of, what were the touch points or the qualities that you saw that you felt like, well, these are, these are the things where, that, will, that will transfer over to the show that we're working on? Well, be, because I'm always sort of looking at it with an eye towards sort of presenting it as sort of a TV drama, you know, I, I I go to sort of what motivates me. And when I saw all these characters, even what could be uh, considered part of their strangeness, I saw um, a group of individuals sort of consumed by individual pain. And some of my favorite shows, um, even some of the funnier shows that I like, I feel like... Um, the touchstone is the comes from that place of pain, and that for me it sounds a little macabre, but that for me sort of like <laughs> is often a jumping off point for me when I when in a project in terms of what uh, sparks my interest. Um, and then uh, my, myself, I'm I've never really considered myself like a superhero guy, you know, and uh, I like to come at things from a. a a, a character perspective, and I just, I just, I was a fan of superheroes, but I am not a nut for superhero stuff, and um, so I needed to find um, where I could, um, for me, ground this show, um, and for some reason, the stranger these characters the were, to me, they felt more grounded than other people I'd seen before in, in these sort of universes, but. It, it's uh, I guess for those who haven't seen the pilot yet, it's it's a sort of um, 
it's a sort of group of people who, you know, as you've said, have experienced some trauma, um, and the effect of that trauma has sort of left them with um, supernatural abilities, basically. But they're not, ne- but they're not necessarily like supernatural abilities that they wake up and, you know, they can, you know, fly or run really fast. They're not supernatural abilities that even on the surface or even in the first episode really seem to have anything to do with superheroism as it's sort of portrayed in movies and TV a lot. Exactly. It's more um it, not exactly nothing nothing uh lends itself to waking up each morning and saying that I'm special. Um I think these people have been waking up for decades thinking they were different and they were other and in some ways they had deserved what had happened to them. Um and uh I was very um uh interested in in going back to the origins of that story and sort of like taking it as our own and like letting our Doom Patrol sort of frankly from borrowing from the different eras but making our thing its its own and, and, and creating our own sort of origin, you know, obviously honoring and and adapting the origin stories that had come before and watching this group of individuals sort of begin to step out from these um shells that they had uh, essentially put themselves in. Uh, decades and decades ago to begin to realize that just because they're different doesn't mean they can't be good. Right. Yeah. How um how elastic did you feel going into this the the sort of superhero genre which is overstuffed at this point with content. You know, I mean as you were talking to DC and to Warner Brothers and Berlanti um you know how how much room did you feel like you there was for you to do something that you hadn't necessarily seen before? Um, to DC's credit and Warner Brothers and uh, Greg Berlanti and Sam Schechter and Jeff John, to their eternal credit, they spoke to me about the project and they said, "Would you please just sort of give us your take?" And I gave them my take, and again, not necessarily being in the superhero world I just laid out what I wanted to do which was a, a very mature sort of scruffy in your face epic feeling cinematic not always politically correct thing and uh, they universally have been behind it 100% and it was incredibly liberating um, I think that has part to do with the fact that you know Doom Patrol is the second show in this DC universe that they're trying to launch. So everyone is, is is very hungry for things that, even within the superhero universe, stand out right. and feel different. And um, uh, more specifically, from even like the Warner Brothers point of view, where you have the CW shows, that it feels different and it feels um, uh, um, more mature, more and just uh, a bit more cinematic and just something. Um, that you wouldn't necessarily see on um, typical broadcast television. Right. There's it, there are a lot of f bombs in the in the uh, in the first episode and and some nudity, but I think the most interesting thing that you seem to do is there's no climactic fight. Like the first right. the first hour ends and you've set up a, a a climactic fight, but in a typical like first hour of television for a superhero show, as we've seen them, like they would have gotten to that. Like where you end would be, you know, sort of before the last act break, right? Yeah. Was that like how much discussion was there of that, and how conscious was 
like when did you decide that's how you wanted that that first episode to end um well i mean to be perfectly honest with you when i wrote the pilot uh i wrote something very big you've seen the pilot and I was always expecting someone along the way would say, this is so big, we have to chop it in half and make it the first two episodes. You <laughs> right, <know? laughs> right. Because I was like, this is crazy. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and, um, but they got behind it, and we did it. And that was rather deliberate to, to not have the normal uh, superhero structure to the show. Uh, it's a show that, um, uh, as you've seen, it is very deliberate in its pacing for the first 25 to 30 minutes. And that's to get used to people used to the fact that they're not going to be seeing the typical show where we're going to be spending a lot of time with character and character development is just as important as any superpower or any super fight and that carries across season one you know we have uh whole episodes without big boss fights or anything that are just some are just about the these group of people doing their own version of group therapy you know i mean it's meant to be very mature um tackling a lot of issues dealing with trauma and their individual issues and uh and like you said there are a lot of f-bombs so it's personally what i like to do i call it high low i mean Mm -hmm. we go for mature and sophisticated and we're not afraid to do a burp or a butt joke or you know what i mean so that's just what makes me smile and what makes me get emotional and all that so um what's happening in the pilot is very much on purpose and, and and is a sort of roadmap for what to expect, you know, to come. Did anyone at any point come around and say like, "Hey, listen, why don't you cut back the the robot guy and the crazy girl sitting on the park bench talking about relationships and get to the to the fight quicker?" No. Um uh I I I There's also a thing, I mean, I've done a a couple of new shows now and 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 it's a point of just it's just my thing you know and i'm very stubborn about it is that sometimes I, i'll do something in a pilot to throw down a marker not just to the fans but to the to everyone who's involved in the show to understand what we're going for and and what so there are certain moments that are very quiet moments still moments stuff that sometimes you don't get necessarily to do on a network show because uh, you don't have the time but we have a, a bit of a longer production schedule for this one and to me it's um, really, really important to sort of lay down the market and say this scene on the park bench is just as important, if not more, than the fight in the town square. Right. Yeah. Was there were there voices raised at any point to say like, yeah, but the fans will want X, Y, Z. Um, I'm trying to think. I think. I can't think of any specific issue beyond um, sometimes if there's been a call. Some the the, the most uh, with probably with any pilot process, the the most um, consistent call is sort of like, can you clarify something? You know, and going for clarity. And you know, that's sometimes pilots can then be overrun with what clearly sounds like notes. They've been noted to death. So. They, so um, it's finding that balance uh, between making sure old fans of the Doom Patrol and new fans, um, everyone feels comfortable at least coming into the world, but also getting everyone comfortable with the fact that there are things we are not going to explain to you. And um, this show, particularly because of the platform is going on and, and because it's not broadcast, um, 
we've really strived to um, not. This is going to sound vaguely condescending, but I don't even maybe to my brethren and like me, but but not talk down to fans. You know, let people give them the space to figure things out and not answer things, and they can much as anyone else put you know point A that happened at minute ten together with point B at minute fifty. You know, and, and giving and giving everyone credit for actually watching the show. You know? What another interesting thing that the pilot does is when they. Um you know, they sort of, there's a big uh, moment in the, I, I guess what you'd say was the third act, um, where they they go into town, right? Right. And um, the response that they get is interesting because while people are sort of looking at them sideways, um, they're not like necessarily running screaming from them right. at first. So, which is what, if this were like a hyper-realistic thing, mm-hmm. they probably would be. So, like, how did you... What, how did you think about the context in which these characters were being placed? Like, what, what's the the world is not exactly our world, yeah. Yeah, the 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 world is, um, you know, the show has its own continuity when it comes to the rest of sort of the DC universe, but it is a world in which other superheroes exist. So that something different like this might be walking around wouldn't be as if you know aliens just came from Mars because. People may have seen heroes on their TVs and stuff, you know. So, so that's exactly right. It's not one hundred percent our world, but our our folks still don't. We we wanted it most to be to to have that feeling of if you're someone who felt different or looked different, that feeling of self consciousness you might have going out somewhere to the mall or to the movies or something, you know. Right. What um. Aside from, say, you know that moment on the park bench with uh, Robot Man and Crazy Jane, um, you know, were there were there things that, um, as you described, sort of throwing down your marker? Were there things that, as you were writing it, were were other things like that? I guess that, that stuck out for you. Uh, in the yeah, one was uh, very much um, the pacing. You know, the, the the like I mentioned, the deliberate pace is, you know, if 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 there's a note you're going to get, maybe particularly in a pilot, it might be, can you pace things up a little bit? You know, but it was very important to sort of be dwelling as these characters were dwelling in their sense of isolation and loneliness. Um, so there are moments like with um, Rita and Cliff sitting on the sofa watching. Um, NASCAR racing, which is a very quiet um, scene, but um, spoke volumes. You know, in in both him uh, sort of having come to a um, a loggerheads of trying to reconnect with himself and get himself walking and moving and feeling functional, um, and the two of them starting to get to know one another in a more in a less sarcastic, uh, more real way. So that's one moment that sort of jumps out. uh, Cliff and and Larry uh, standing on the veranda, just looking out into the openness and just sort of getting to know one another and and not rushing it. You know, what I mean, not throwing them into a, like a hijink situation where we better get to know each other quick. While we're, you know, what I mean, right. doing some uh, it, and just letting it breathe. You know, what I mean, um, those are a couple of things that just stand out at the moment. You know? Those moments, do you feel like you are able to? Um if you were doing something that was like a completely naturalistic drama, like mm-hmm. those moments would feel a lot different because you would have two people who were like 
in regular clothes or in right. period garb. Like instead, you've got like a guy wrapped in bandages, like wheeling around a, a robot mm-hmm. on a dolly, um, and they're just standing there looking at the scenery. So like, it does the sort of the contrast of the very like quiet moment with the very weird visual that you have is that are you able to sort of get away with letting those moments sit for a bit more because of the weirdness that's baked into it? Well, I, I'm hoping we can get away with the moment because people are just into the moment right, and, they're, and right. they're feeling it. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, just to sort of like peel back the curtain a little bit, you know, the, the pilot came together rather quickly, the whole process. So, um, you know, even as I was writing it at the time I was writing, it, we were up in, you know, uh, trying to cast up and crew up and get writers and everything and and, but just about everyone I met I would say look this is happening and I'm writing this thing and because this world is so bad there are certain traps I might be walking into that I'm not even aware of traps yet you know what I mean so but we'll figure that out and it you know when I was finished with the script you know it's and then we start you know really in pre-production it's that cold feeling (laughs) sets in of realizing, you know, I've got a three-page scene that you're describing with a guy in bandages and a, and, a, and, a, and a guy in a robot suit. And I'm like, you can't see their mouths moving. You can't see. And they're just standing there. And and so it was a little terrifying, to be honest with you. Think, oh, my goodness. Because we, we were figuring out how we were going to do it as we were doing it. And um, that's one of the reasons, you know, the pilot spends so much time with these men uh, in, in their respective eras, when they become who they become, so whenever you're looking at them, you feel that 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 um, that uh, that human inside of them. So, um, I mean, that's a long-winded way to answer, but but um, because there's a lot more to that moment <laughs> that, right, right, right. <laughs> that you scratched at, you know what I mean? But um, another thing that that works really well that it seems like could have easily gone south was. Um, um, Cliff, when he's trying to go up the stairs, like sort of flashing back to his daughter, and they're mm-hmm. sort of um, the flashbacks a little jumbled because it's he's flashing back to this experience he had with her, but it's you're seeing his hands as the robot hands, mm-hmm. and it's it just seemed like when I was watching it something that could have just been maudlin or shitty or just mm-hmm. but but it was totally affecting. So I just wondered like how you came up with that that little bit there, and you know I I. And thank you for saying that because that you're you're exactly right. I could have gone a couple of different ways, you know. What I mean, I thought Glenn Winter, the director, did a wonderful job of pulling that off. Um, and uh, you know, I've always been a fan of. I, I'm going to butcher the name of the Michelle Gondry. You know I mean, it's, it's a little Eternal Sunshineish, you know. And yeah. and but I wasn't quite sure how we were going to pull it off. And Glenn had some wonderful visual ways to do it. And I was really insistent on I need to see this robot hand in the memory, you know. And and um, and it was scripted almost like that, but and Glenn added so much to it, you know what I mean? And 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 Brendan added so much to it, you know what I mean? By um by seeing the human side of of, of him, and um the the the, the I, I don't know. It was you asked how I was I was it was that it was an emotional moment on paper that could have gone horribly awry, and it didn't. Right. <laughs> The uh, the process of making of, of making the show. I mean, yeah. you said it came together really fast. Um, you know, was there anything that stuck out in terms of a place where you, you surprised yourself, or the the show surprised you in a pleasant way? Um, it was 
the crew. We had something like approximately 127 scenes in in the pilot, which is a massive number of scenes for a pilot. Um, and the number of sets that had to be built, and again, uh, in a comparatively short amount of time compared to most projects of this size, was was sort of astounding. And that they pulled this off, and that I would uh, arrive at a set and see that it wasn't just the dock with you know with Rita that they'd made the man made that waterfall that it's all man made. You know, what I mean, it's just so the level of care and precision that the crew took then has been and has been taking ever since this show goes to crazy places during the season that are hyper real and 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 also very naturalistic different eras different times we just shot you know a revenant like episode in 1913 in the Yukon and the crew has been just absolutely fastidious and 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 perfectionist and wonderful so that was one of the real pleasant surprises for me oh. uh, Jeremy thanks for doing this thank you so much it was a pleasure documentary Leaving Neverland about allegations of sexual abuse against Michael Jackson will premiere March 3rd and 4th on HBO. Afterlife, a new series from Ricky Gervais, will debut on Netflix March 8th. Critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discussed both. So this week we're talking about two incredibly different things, both of which have taken a long time to come to the screen for very different reasons. Uh, the first one is premiering on HBO this Sunday. It's a two-night event, Leaving Neverland. Now, this one has been the subject of much controversy. This is the documentary about Michael Jackson and his alleged victims who were minors at the time. And Dan, I know you saw all four episodes. You wrote a great column for us, by the way, Thank you. about that. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the documentary and also where we are sort of in this cycle of HBO premiering it and getting pushback from the Jackson estate, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So this is not necessarily something I would have even reviewed because it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. My colleague on the film side, Owen Gleiberman, reviewed it, except... Uh, before it came to air, it entered the news in a big way because the Jackson estate has been pushing back very aggressively against it. Um, in short, this is a group of his survivors who have a lot of cultural cachet, a huge number of fans, and a livelihood that depends on Jackson's reputation not being besmirched. The existence of a four-hour film airing on a network as powerful and potent as HBO that's airing these truly disgusting allegations is very problematic for them. Uh, at first, they simply pushed back aggressively against HBO and tried to foment kind of fan rebellion. I said in my column I wrote about their tactics that it seemed apparent that because they had no standing to sue that they were kind of using their public letters to HBO as a way to kind of provide marching orders to uh, Jackson's devoted fans and spread the idea that this was a pack of lies. And they have no standing to sue because you can't defame a dead That's exactly right. You cannot you cannot be defamed if you have died. Great. Um, however, they have found an angle to sue HBO and are now claiming that uh, the airing of this documentary is in breach of a clause in a contract that HBO signed with Jackson when they aired one of his concerts when he was alive, mm. uh, saying that they would not disparage him. And so that is currently the argument they're putting forward. 
The clock is ticking, though, because <laughs> once this airs on HBO, it cannot be unaired. The toothpaste cannot be put it back in the tube. And HBO is very firm on the idea that they are going to air this. Their documentaries are a huge part of their brand. And one hopes that what they get back in terms of the image gains of being brave and standing up uh, for this documentarian's vision offsets the losses of fans of Jackson who have been very active on Twitter saying that they are canceling their HBO subscriptions. Um, What I would say about the documentary itself briefly is that it airs at great length the allegations of Wade Robson and James Safechuck, two individuals who met Jackson at very young ages through their kind of peripheral roles in the world of entertainment. Robson, who grew up to be a successful choreographer, met Jackson because he was a participant in a dance contest. Uh, Savechuk was an actor in a Pepsi ad with Jackson. And their relative vulnerability in the film's telling uh, allowed Jackson to not merely abuse and assault them as very young minors, but also infiltrate their family lives in ways that was extremely damaging. So as a documentary, as a text, did you find it compelling? Is it persuasive? Is this the kind of thing that once it airs, there's no looking at Jackson and his legacy the same way ever again? Yeah, I think if anything could be the kind of magic bullet, for lack of a better term, that torches the Jackson legacy, which has been pretty unassailable despite rumors and innuendo uh, through the years, including when he was alive, this might be it not merely because Robson and Safechuck's testimony is so compelling, but also because footage of Jackson so integrated into the family lives of these two, used as a montage with their description of what was going on behind the scenes, adds up to such a damning and compelling picture. Mm. It's impossible to look at the footage Counterpoint in counterpoint with what these two men are saying and see it as an innocent pop star playing with his young friends if you're a person who is predisposed to believe victims. It's just, wow. it looks it looks really bad. And as I wrote, you know, he's still on the rotation of every Spotify playlist and it's not hard to imagine people who see this really thinking twice the next time they click play in the same way that R. Kelly, for instance, yeah, who that. R. Kelly, who there's been rumors and innuendo and great reporting about him through the years, but it took the power of a television documentary series to kind of finally kibosh his career once and for all. Right. It seems to have taken for R. Kelly in particular a sort of specific rallying point for opposition. There have been flashpoints of people trying to get people to oppose him more publicly for so long and it seems like you said it took that sort of event of the Lifetime documentary to get a more core consensus in a way that is actually now he 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 is out on bail but he did go to prison he is being charged something is happening there in a way that it hasn't in a very long time so I'm very curious to see how this plays out for Jackson it's interesting to wonder how it will play out not least because one of the complications of Jackson no longer being living 
is that there is no legal consequence he can face. And I feel as though there are kind of concrete goals that supporters of Kelly's victims want to see happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a little bit more ineffable of what we do with Jackson Mm -hmm. now that he's no longer here. Right. Legacy. Telling the truth is a a very good start, though. And I'm glad that HBO is, is putting this forward. All right. Well, that's airing Sunday and Monday. Yeah. And... After that, after that <laughs> airs later in the week, um, Netflix will be airing, as you say, a project with similar complications, but less similarly complicated. Yes, yeah, not less, similar complications. Yeah, they're, they're not similar complications at all. No, no way. But they are. It is similarly complicated in coming to the screen. Yeah, there's no real good segue here. Yeah, I tried valiantly. <laughs> um, so this is Rich, Ricky Gervais's uh, new sitcom. Uh, called Afterlife, you are reviewing for us. And I'm very curious about it because Gervais is such a vexed figure in our culture. He Mm -hmm. has a ton of fans and is seen by some as a real radical truth teller. But I feel like a lot of people think he's, including me, think he's completely obnoxious at this point. (laughs) And we've like lost the Ricky Gervais we once loved and or at least liked. And so tell me a little bit about where he is right now. Yeah, Gervais is a really interesting person, as you said. He, of course, is the creator of the original UK office and extras on HBO. His work with Stephen Merchant is some of the great comedy of the past little while. Um, But as you said, he's now kind of his persona is that of like the abrasive, I'm going to tell you what I think, no matter what you think of me, sort of PC snowflake guy. and so that's why his new this new show is kind of fascinating to me. I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around it. It's six episodes. It's something Gervais has been trying to get done for a long time, actually. Um, and it's about a widower played by Gervais who is trying to get on with his life, but in but not really. He's basically um, wallowing in it. He's miserable, and of course, understandably. But he's decided that basically it doesn't matter what he says or does because nothing matters anymore. So who cares? Uh, but it is ultimately much more earnest than that description makes it sound. It is ultimately sort of about how, yes, life is miserable sometimes and we can be miserable, but there's kind of no point in just being a miserable person, making other people miserable. Let's help each other out while we're here sort of thing, which is really interesting from him. And the Netflix promotional campaign has understandably really leaned on his persona, as we've discussed, and it's it's sort of pushing the aspect of the show that's just him being obnoxious to people and basically horrible. But the other side of that in the show is everyone recognizing that he's horrible, calling him out as such, and him ultimately learning from that. So that is an interesting thing for him to have written, because it's written and directed entirely by him. And I'm I, I'm having trouble reconciling it with who I know he tends to be in real life. So it, it's, an, it's a fascinating window into maybe where he is or has been, but it is a very strange thing to watch when you know what he's like as a person. Right. And, I, and we should clarify what he's like as a person. We're, we're, part of that is just his comedy yes. is so driven by uh, personal attacks, this sort of uh, cruelty. He's um, very... takes political stances with one with which one can agree or disagree but takes them in a very vituperative way it, it, i mean this whole yeah. thing is i'm gonna say what i want to say yeah. and screw you if you don't like it which yes. is this character until this character decides that that's a terrible way to live 
So it's a really interesting show because it feels like it's him rejecting his own persona, but I don't think he has. So I don't... I'm really interested to see how people take it. I think it will be taken pretty well, but it is bizarre coming from him. It's funny. Sometimes I do feel like art is a way for people to like try out things that they can't or won't do in life. Yeah. And not merely does he seem to enjoy being such an unlikable person in his real life. It also <laughs> pays really well. And so he gets yes. to try out to see what it would be like to be a nice guy because he can't and won't do it in reality perhaps look you know ultimately i'm really into the sort of new wave of shows that is about being a better person we've seen some really good examples of that with the good place with russian doll recently i like that as a moral again i just didn't expect it from gervais but hey you know while we're here and while we're drowning in television we might as well drown in something different is there any hope for a second season does it seem like I think if he wants to do it, Netflix will let him do it. I mean, why not? It wraps up really, I think, well, and it could stand on its own. But, hey, maybe we'll see more of it. Yeah, sounds like sounds like something to at least try out this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. And, hey, there's always more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Cal Penn, host of Amazon's new documentary series, This Giant Beast That Is the Global Economy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.